Hi, everyone. Welcome to the last episode in the Academic Perspective segment. So far, we've talked to professors who are economists by training and experts in private equity. But today, we're shifting gears and we're talking to a sociologist who studies the global economy. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the history of globalization and the impact of business and free enterprise around the world with Professor Gary Jureffi. Dr. Jureffi is the father of modern global value chain theory, and he uses global value chains as a tool to help us better understand how the world's economies have evolved. So far on the show, we've talked about private equity in a vacuum, but I think it's valuable to take a step back and have a discussion from an international perspective about how business can facilitate development and how the COVID-19 crisis gives us a deeper understanding of our interconnected world. I'm your host, Shruti Rao. And this is Counting on Capital. Professor Jureffi, welcome to the show. You are a leading authority on the global value chain framework, which has been used as a crucial lens with which to understand globalization. Just to get us started, can you walk us through the history of global value chain theory and the origins of how the framework was created? Sure. Thanks. Uh so global value chain theory actually started with people trying to understand how and why American firms began to move production offshore. Uh, so it's, it's really picking up uh, part of a post-World War II story where in the early decades, the 60s and the 70s, uh, U.S. multinationals uh, we're, we're moving offshore with production facilities and industries that are more uh, technology-oriented or capital-intensive, like automobiles or heavy machinery or even pharmaceuticals. And as we got into the 80s and 90s, a lot more companies began to uh, move away from the uh, tech-oriented industries and began to think about how consumer products could be uh, made offshore using uh, lower wage uh, labor in uh, nearby or distant countries and lowering prices to consumers of imported goods. And, and so partly uh, academics began to study this in terms of these initial steps of setting up assembly industries in places like Mexico. That was called the the maquiladora industry, uh, where U.S. companies would locate along the southern U.S. border, uh, Texas or California, and have twin plants on the Mexico side. And U.S. companies would ship parts uh, to Mexico, and Mexican companies would assemble them and send the product back to the U.S., and there would be a big saving in labor costs. But in that kind of cross-border supply chain, it was kind of the first stage of globalization from a, a value chain point of view, uh, you needed U.S. manufacturers uh, to be actually producing and sending parts. And the only thing you were asking companies in Mexico to do or in Puerto Rico, if you were doing pharmaceuticals, was just doing the assembly. And I think what really began to uh, push or accelerate globalization in terms of production much more extensively was when uh, global retailers and brands began to realize that they could give the specifications for 
products like clothing goods or uh, new footwear to overseas manufacturers who could make the whole product. And so that was considered moving from an assembly model to what was called full package production or, or international subcontracting. Uh, and, and key examples in the 1970s were companies like Sears and JCPenney and Kmart, who were some of the biggest retailers who began to move production offshore, or well-known brands like Nike and, and Reeboks uh, that would start to take footwear production. And, and the companies were really just built around a brand, but they needed production facilities overseas overseas. Uh, Fashion apparel like Liz Claiborne was an early mover. And that all started in the, the mid-70s to, to early 80s. And then in the 80s, supermarkets began to do the same thing. Uh, they began to look for fresh produce that would be grown in overseas countries and import those back into U.S. or, or European markets like the U.K. Uh, and that would really be the beginnings of these uh, global production networks. So, so what academics were doing in these years, the, the 80s, 90s, uh, was tracking how those global production networks got set up uh, by which companies on the U.S. side or which countries and, and what the impact of that was on jobs in the U.S. and also prices of goods going to consumers. In your work studying globalization, you focused a lot on China. China is especially unique because of the way that it embraced free market and private capital investment. What can we learn from China's globalization story, and how does it compare with that of other countries? Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, China is, is a particularly important uh, case because uh, the Chinese government is still very heavily involved in the organization of the economy. So in that sense, it's a socialist country with extensive government control. It's also led by the Communist Party. So nowadays, the distinction between socialist countries and communist countries is is blurred quite a bit. The general term of sort of government-led economies or socialist-led economies would apply to China. China has been unusual because it embraced foreign capital, and it embraced setting up markets in China, but it still wanted to retain heavy state controls over what international business could do. Uh, And so one of the things that that China did was uh, it invited multinationals to come in, set up production bases there, and to uh, create a really powerful export-oriented economy uh, based in China. What the, the Chinese also wanted was they wanted technology transfer. They wanted to learn how to produce some of these products. So even though China invited in foreign capital, it wasn't inviting capital in without strings. There were certain conditions. And, and those conditions also included taking on local Chinese partners. So all of the uh, international auto companies that came into China uh, had to take on, uh, create joint ventures with Chinese uh, firms. That was part of technology transfer. Uh, and they had to set up these R&D facilities when they were in high-tech areas. Uh, so China wanted to be able to get the advantages of setting up these kind of international market relations 
with foreign companies, but they wanted to get as much technology transfer and knowledge transfer as possible. That was really different than, say, a country like India, where India is similar size to China, but India never really embraced uh, foreign direct investment uh, the same way the Chinese did. Uh, and India would much prefer to have set up its economy and it, areas where it was strong, like the IT industry, using domestic, big domestic firms like Tata uh, Industries or Wipro or uh, Infosys. So, so India and China have had two really different models. The Chinese model has been much more uh, accepting of foreign capital coming in, but with different kinds of controls or regulations to try to make sure the technology transfer and knowledge transfer could occur uh, inside China. So in some ways, I think the, 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 the China-U.S. relationship has been really strong. Uh, but after 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, I think exports from China to the U.S. and to Europe and elsewhere skyrocketed beyond what anybody imagined possible. So China managed to uh, play the value chain game so that they were moving up the technology ladder almost faster than anybody. That began to create a, a sort of China backlash. So, so globalization, which for 30 years was basically focused on, on export success in the case of developing countries, over time began to challenge the, 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 the continued viability of many of these manufacturing industries in the U.S. and other industrialized countries. And so that's, that's changed the whole narrative about globalization from something that was generally positive to something which is now much more negative and, and, and selective in terms of uh, what people think they want to take from globalization. So let's talk about the ramifications of globalization. How do we think about global competitiveness in an increasingly connected world? Is it a good thing? What happens to jobs and innovation and how will it impact both the developed and the developing world? So that's a really central question. I, I think that from the academic point of view, one of the things that the global value chain framework did that other um, frameworks didn't was it did put these international business firms right at the heart of globalization and creating these global industries. It wasn't just macro forces like trade and investment. It was companies making decisions about where to invest and how to move up technology ladders. And in that sense, again, that, that's been considered a really important force for change. But I think there's a couple key um, counter uh, narratives or challenges that the role of international business has introduced. On the one hand, if you look at the large developing economies like China, as they have begun to learn more about the global industries uh, in which they're involved, they're more and more interested in having local firms begin to take leadership roles uh, and challenge international business. So China is creating its own multinational companies and India is creating its own multinational companies. And from the point of view of international economics, this is considered a good thing. Part of development is having all countries be able to create leading enterprises that are able to be uh, top firms in these different global industries. And so, so that's part of what's happened is uh, as other countries have 
moved up this industrial upgrading ladder, they're becoming uh, more full-fledged competitors to the U.S. and the large European and Japanese and other advanced uh, multinationals. I think uh, another issue back home in the, in the home countries of these uh, international businesses is there's this concern about uh, one, jobs, and two, innovation. Uh, the, the concern in developed countries is we want to still have a workforce that's able to take advantage of manufacturing, but, but manufacturing as it moved offshore is now becoming more highly automated and more connected to advanced services. So the very definition of these global industries means if we're going to try to rebuild some of those industries back in the U.S. and use multinational companies to do that, we're having a much different kind of – we need a very different kind of workforce here in the U.S., and we also need to be able to be sure that innovation can continue to stay strong in the U.S. So I think that, that both the developing countries and the advanced industrial countries see challenges as these global industries have evolved. Uh, and I think one other big question that, that rises from this is, is globalization has now been associated with increasing levels of inequality uh, in the international economy and, and in uh the advanced industrial countries as well. So in some cases, there's been this dark side of globalization, the fact that uh, you can have many advantages, but you reach points where uh, the game kind of changes. And I think now that we've been moving more and more into a digital economy, uh, I, I think we're having to rethink uh, in, in all countries, but especially the U.S., what we want international business to do for us. Uh, it, it's certainly um, setting up a lot of uh, global industries, but the nature of these industries is becoming more innovation-centered. And so I think that's what we're trying to capture back in the United States. How do we, how do we create a new set of jobs uh, that would uh, rival the amount of jobs that have moved offshore as industries have, become, have gone global? From the election of Donald Trump here in the U.S. to Brexit, it appears we are seeing a rising global movement of nationalism. Could this be a response to the effects of globalization, and how do we better understand that? I think this global, uh, this economic nationalism that we're seeing is part of sort of hyper-specialization in the globalization process. As globalization proceeded, countries began to specialize more and more in specific parts, not entire products. And so that this, this specialization uh, in many ways has become a, a kind of a problem. And I think there's a big group of um, uh, mid-skill workers in the U.S. and other advanced industrial countries that have felt that they've been left behind by globalization. And I think this is, this is a bigger problem not just of globalization, but of industrialization. The nature of industrialization and development today is, require, is requiring a much more highly skilled workforce than we had in the past. And, and a lot of the skills aren't widely distributed across uh, countries. The COVID-19 crisis has shaken the world. This crisis has revealed some strains and weaknesses in different parts of our manufacturing and food supply chains. Do you think there will be a greater emphasis in the future on building more local and less global supply chains? 
And could this crisis be an impetus for us to rethink the global economic model? Yes, I think that this uh, this global pandemic has been completely unprecedented, as many people have said, because of how fast uh, and how widespread it's uh, impacted the entire global economy. In a matter of a couple of months, uh, most countries have had to close down uh, their uh, their production in order to try to deal with the health side of, of the uh, coronavirus. I think it's also been viewed as a um, litmus test for for global supply chains. And one of the things that we've seen in the U.S. Uh, has been certain shortages of, of critical products uh, as demand has spiked for things like personal protective equipment and testing kits uh, and uh, and vaccines that are still to be developed. And, and we've also seen food shortages as institutional demand has sort of collapsed. So I, I think that from a supply chain point of view, some people are saying that the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic is showing us the problems of uh, supply chains that have become too fragile because they've been focused on this optimizing model of very efficient, low-cost supply chains. And now that we're seeing these spikes in demand, there's a big push to uh, bring these supply chains back home. And so the debate is between fragile supply chains versus resilient supply chains. And resiliency is is this concept that we have to create different kinds of redundancy or uh, greater inventories for products that are considered strategic. And we've seen that with products like the N95 masks, uh, those respirators, which actually are, are widely uh, available uh, around the world. But in the case of the U.S., the two leading suppliers, 3M uh, from Minnesota and Honeywell, uh, didn't have enough inventory in place. To me, the supply chain and the business side of the coronavirus has actually responded uh, surprisingly fast and, and in a robust way. People had been saying the supply chains were too fragile, but over the last two and a half months from early March till now, the big uh, N95 mask producers in the U.S. have quadrupled and quintupled their, their supplies of of these masks. So I think that there's a uh, an ability to, to respond uh, quickly. Part of it has been not so much a market failure as a policy failure in the case of the U.S. We were slow to acknowledge the severity of the of the health crisis. And I think most countries were in a similar position. Nobody quite knew just how devastating it would get until the uh, the pandemic hit different countries directly. But there's a sense that there's a set of essential products uh, that should be produced uh, more extensively inside the U.S. And I think this has been part of the globalization debate all along. There's been some people who felt that global production greatly enhances efficiency and lowers consumer costs for goods, and that's been a big advantage. On the other hand, it's cost a lot of jobs that have moved offshore, and we've lost a sense of control over these industries. So we're going to start to see, a, I think, a reshoring of some of these industries. But the key question is, which products do we want to bring back to the U.S.? I think uh, pharmaceuticals is going to be a key area where 
where some pharmaceuticals are going to be considered very essential and and much of the active ingredient production for for pharmaceuticals has has moved offshore, especially generic drugs. Uh, so I think we're going to see an an effort to bring those products back. But to do that or to make those decisions, I think we're going to need to have private sector and government discussing and deciding together which not only which are the strategic products, but how would you reorganize the supply chains in such a way that you can have really strong production inside the U.S., but also have some international options that may be a middle ground. So I think for the U.S., we have to, I think, look towards a smart form of globalization, which is going to take advantage of the key technologies that American firms have been creating and continuing to innovate, and then figure out where we want to get cost advantages by moving production uh, to a set of strategic suppliers or allies that are um, organized not just in terms of optimal production costs, but also increase the security of those supply chains to some degree. And I think that doesn't mean bringing everything back to the U.S. It would be totally impossible for the United States to want to recapture uh, the production of most goods that we consume. We're far too complex a society. I think we've got to be focusing on the knowledge-intensive areas. And, and in a sense, our international business sector is is probably more uh, uh, knowledgeable and uh, about and connected to the uh, innovation frontiers in the global economy. So in that way, business could really help us rethink what kind of industrial structures would best fit the U.S. in the 21st century compared to the way we used to build industries at the end of the 20th century. Professor Jureffi, thank you so much for joining us. So today, we didn't specifically talk about private equity or private capital. Instead, we took a step back and talked about the state of the global economy to better understand globalization and manufacturing trends. As the world became increasingly connected, we started sending production of all kinds of goods, offshore and overseas. We realized that it would be cheaper and more efficient to transfer production and manufacturing abroad, and we celebrated a globalized, connected world. Today, the globalization story is more complicated. As manufacturing went overseas, so did jobs. And with it came a rise in economic nationalism. Now, COVID-19 has further stress-tested our supply chain network, and while the vast majority of U.S. consumption will continue to remain abroad, we are undoubtedly going to have a national reckoning on where to produce vital products like vaccines. So the questions arise. Will the U.S. be able to redesign our complex supply chain network? Will the government and business leaders be able to collaborate on innovative ways necessary to protect our economic well-being and national security? These are the questions we must grapple with as we move forward and shape the next decade in a globalized world. Thanks for tuning in to our episode today. Join us next time. We'll be launching a new segment on portfolio companies and their perspective on private equity. I'm your host, Shruti Rao, and this is Counting on Capital. Mm-hmm.